Hi, I'm Frances Morgan. This is The Folded Lie. If this is your first time tuning in, I suggest you go back to episode one. In this final episode, we look at how the descendants of Merv Flanagan and Reg Wern view this story differently. As you heard earlier, John Wern doesn't believe this story is one of injustice. You think there, were, there was a miscarriage of justice? I do. Yeah, OK. I That's do. coming through to me. He struggled with the thought that his grandfather, politician Walter Wern, may have had a hand in getting Reg off the hook. Yet for Sandra Williams, the fact that her grandfather's family missed out on a trial is everything. I mean, here it is 100 years later and I wish I, you know, I, wish I could sit here now and say, well, at least my grandfather got justice, at least he went to jail for, I don't know, you know. John and Sandra's views couldn't be more different. Both sides of this story are about to confront some uncomfortable truths. You might get offended when I say, you know, your uncle's arsehole doing what he's done. It will be the first meeting of descendants associated with this, and I'm well aware of that, and I've put some significance in that. He most pro- no, but he most probably say, Sandra, I understand. In the last 12 months, while we've been making this podcast, Sandra's become something of a union celebrity. We've watched her sign autographs, give speeches and rub shoulders with Sydney's political elite. But when I first met her seven years ago, she had no idea about her grandfather's story. I mean, that's I said, there's not that much I can tell you. I'd come hoping to hear Sandra's family stories about the killing. Only I ended up answering more questions than I asked. I sat side by side on the couch with Sandra, handing her documents. I keep reading all the things and that. And as I said, I don't stop talking about it. Now people's going to start getting sick of me. (laughs) After I left, the first person Sandra called was her granddaughter, Natalie. So the day after I visited and you had these documents and that you had this information, how did you feel? Well, I felt honoured, really, when I started reading it all. What? Yeah. Really? Well, not to know, you know, Mm. to get to nearly 70 and not know any of that Mm. and and then all of a sudden it's all in front of you. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so it was overwhelming, but, I mean, then when Natalie came up and we sat here on the lounge, well, you know, she was reading it all because I'd already read it all and she's reading it and all that, you know, and the tears are pouring down her face mm-hmm. and I'm sitting here and I'm crying with her and I said, you know, oh. it's unbelievable, all them years you didn't know. Visiting Sandra now for the second time, I'm surprised at what a difference this story has made to her life. I feel real good in myself. Is that different so, to before? Or? Yeah, I think after everything that I've found out and, like, after the dinner and all that, you mm. know what I mean? As I said, we were crying because, we, like, we felt, we felt like we were that honoured mm. to being included in all that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Remember, there's a lot of shame and bad luck in the Flanagan family's past. There's the death of Merv's father, which left Merv's mother extremely poor. There was Merv's death, which left his wife Beatrice and Sandra's dad growing up in poverty. Then there's Sandra's brother who died in custody. 
On this second visit, Sandra tells me of another tragedy, about her and her granddaughter Natalie. When Natalie was two, her mother Tracy, Sandra's daughter, was killed in a car accident. There was three, there was three of them, but Tracy was sitting on the middle one's lap. So when they've hit the pole, she's gone flying out the back window. Tracy was 21. There was another inquest, the fifth inquest in the Flanagan family in the space of a hundred years. After so many years of hardship, it feels like finally something good is happening to the family. The fact that the unions and labour movement are now proud of Merv brings hope. While Sandra's deeply proud of Merv's story, she knows he wasn't a saint. Sandra's seen enough in her life to be a realist. She even has a bit of understanding for what Reg did. How, like, shouldn't even be saying this, but how do you know, like, he hasn't shit himself? He sort of, well, I'm getting in first. Bang. After all her family has been through, the generations of poverty and hardship spurred on by Merv's death I expected her to be angrier. But Sandra has this inner wisdom, this knowledge that life has an uncontrollable force, that there's no point in holding on to hate. I asked Sandra whether she'd be willing to meet with John Wern, the great nephew of the man who killed her grandfather. She agrees. She says she's looking forward to it. Wouldn't it be funny if we clicked and we got married? Ha! He's married, sorry. Oh, he's married. Oh, OK, OK. Not that I want another husband. (laughs) In the last episode, you heard our second visit to Bingra to interview John Wern. We sat at Walter's table in John's dining room and discussed how his grandfather might have been able to influence the outcome of Reg's case. Things got a little bit tense. The jury's out for me on the worthiness or otherwise, and I'll just leave it at that. Is that fair? But once the recorder was switched off over a glass of wine... John suggested we spend the following day visiting the site of the Mile Creek Massacre. It's the place where 28 Aboriginal men, women and children were murdered, beheaded and hacked to pieces by white settlers back in 1838. So John's driving us there now. Is it all right if I record this? I'm with oh, producer yeah, Ellen Lee yeah. Beater. <laughs> just... Yes, yeah, we're certainly not experts on Mile Creek. Also joining us for the journey is John's wife, Wendy. The story of Mile Creek is now infamous, not because it happened, but because it's one of the very few well-documented massacres of Aboriginal people in Australia. It took two trials, but eventually seven of the 11 colonists involved in the killings were found guilty of murder and hanged. But the real villain was Henry Dengar, and he's just a pariah as yeah, far as we're concerned. Yeah, tell me about Henry Dengar. He was Dengar. the owner of Mile Creek. Yeah. And talk about talk about legal cover-ups. He did everything he could to get the blokes acquitted of the crime. He put an enormous amount of money in, and if he if you told me that he'd bribed jury and all that sort of thing, I'd quite believe it, and he probably did. He was a shocker. For a long time, people in Bingra opposed the memorial. Many thought there was no point in remembering something so shameful. John's father was one of them. Interesting story. There was a really strong 
prevailing view among gener my father's generation that sleeping dogs should lie yeah. and that nobody, no generation should be held accountable for the sins of generations that had gone before. Because, you know, we didn't do it, it's not our fault, rah, 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 rah. And we've largely put that, put that uh, thought away, thank heavens, and made some pretty significant apologies for things that happened hundreds of years ago. The memorial eventually opened in 2000, 162 years after the massacre. And John was involved in making it happen, something he's very proud of. At the opening, the two sides came together. Well, you couldn't possibly script it, but you had descendants of the perpetrators and descendants of the victims, and no one told them that they should throw their arms around one another and hug while the tears rolled down their cheeks. That's precisely what happened. Unscripted, and it just happened. And uh, you couldn't rehearse it, you couldn't organise it. That was so emotionally moving. Totally failed to get what it was all about. We're quiet as we walk through the memorial. We walk along a boardwalk raised out of the grass and read about what happened. The final stop along the tour is a plaque set into rock. It reads, In memory of the Wirriure people, who were murdered on the slopes of this ridge in an unprovoked but premeditated act in the late afternoon of 10 June 1838. Only the word murder has been scratched out. That, that suggests that oh. someone's scratched. Oh, doesn't it? I reckon someone's scratched. Yes. Oh, we're just talking yeah, about vandalism. Yeah, the vandalisms. risk you run when you do something good. Someone's run something through that. Hmm. So well, murdered is the uh, there's no other word. There's no other word for it. Oh, no. You can't say passed away. Yeah, it was a dreadful thing. One of many. Well, you don't get hanged. Point. You don't get hanged for something if it's not murder. Mm, yeah, it's um surprising to me though that yeah someone would do that. Yes, oh, that hasn't been. Mm -hmm. We don't go back to John's house. He takes us to the pub instead. Parked outside the pub is a lime green car with the number plate B-U-L-L. Bull. I can't stop staring at the plate as John sets about finding a quiet corner of the pub where we can keep talking. The name is familiar. We find a meeting room inside the pub. John tells us that he didn't get much sleep last night and instead lay awake churning everything over. And as we sit down, away from Walter's dining room table, John seems more reserved, less confident. And it was very sobering to be faced with the reality, the realities of the day, the tone of letters of support that were written and, and uh, some of the imagination. Then it hits me, bull. In one of the letters of support to Reg, an Alf bull was quoted as saying he wished the men were armed with machine guns. If I'd have been there, I would have got nine, he said. A hundred years on, an Alf bull writing letters and a bull driving a lime green car might just be a coincidence, but the expanse of time feels eerily close. Suggestions of 
there, there might have been a, a, a miscarriage of justice or a, uh, some, I guess, interference in the way that the investigative processes were carried out. There's a very real possibility and uh, it's an interpretation that I have to accept may well, may well be right. So I'm interested in what's coming to light as well. But I'm also confronted by it a bit. Yesterday, John was prepared to accept that the legal processes may not have been completely above board. But he wouldn't go as far as admitting it was a miscarriage of justice. Perhaps because it would mean recognising his grandfather, Walter Wern, may be the villain in this story. Because yesterday you said a miscarriage of justice was probably too strong a phrase, if I'm remembering correctly. It may not, yeah. Look, I'd I'd rather that could, yeah, a miscarriage of justice is a fairly strong way to describe what may well have been a miscarriage of the legal processes and the inquiry. I'm not certainly not prepared to offer an opinion on that, but the possibility of it is, 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 is right there. Ever the politician, John chooses his words carefully. He's pushing back on the union narrative that Merv was an innocent striker. John's about to play his final hand. He's got some dirt on Merv. So remember, you've heard about Merv's criminal record. Riotous and disorderly behaviour, assaulting a policeman, playing two up. Well, four years ago, John found out more unfavourable information about Merv. John was interviewed for another documentary that told the story of Reg killing Merv. The documentary maker, named Michael Cove, did some research on Merv and shared it with John. Michael Cove sort of thought he got to know Merv a little bit and he came came to an anti-Merv view, I think, Michael. Just from what he was able to unearth, he didn't think he was a good person at all. Here's what they found. The year before his death, Merv enlisted to go to war. Remember, World War I was happening at this time. Merv was sent to training camp and lasted two days. He contracted a sexually transmitted infection, presumably from one of the sex workers who frequented the camp, and Merv was sent off for treatment. When he returned to training camp, he didn't last much longer the second time round either. His leave date coincides with what's known as the Liverpool Riot, a famous rebellion where soldiers descended on the city drunk, smashing up fruit barrows and shop windows. The documentary portrayed Merv as an unemployed larrikin. I'm greatly influenced by the fact that he wasn't on strike in his job, that, that he was a hothead. That's beyond question. And uh, he was a strong agitator, and I'd, I'd describe him as an agitator more than a striker because he was out of work like so many people were, and that was horrible enough as it was. So John doesn't believe Merv is the striker the unions say he is, which by extension would mean he's not really a labour martyr. He's just been accidentally swept up in this narrative. But it's not that clear-cut. Many men didn't believe striking worked, There'd been a devastating defeat a few decades earlier. And so for some men, saying you weren't on strike was a point of honour. They believed the government bringing in strike breakers gave them no choice, that it forced them out. We don't know if this was Merv's view or if, as John says, he was just out of work. The only thing we know for sure is Merv was a union member who believed in the union cause. John suggests the making of Merv as a martyr is just convenient for the unions. Consider they're fighting for their existence, and I think they're 
using every tool in the toolbox to arrest that. We realised later this isn't just about Merv the martyr. It's about Reg the murderer. John wants to make sure both sides of this story are told. He sees himself as having a role in making sure the union narrative doesn't win out. This is his last chance to have some sway. Do you think Merv should be remembered as a martyr? Well, I I don't really, um, and not for selfish reasons. I just think martyrdom's a bit a bit overdone anyway. But as I said, I think there's you've got to put yourself back in in those days with some balance. So if they're going to to uh, arm uh, with martyrdom, it'll uh, there'll only be one side of the story told when, without any doubt, whatever there were two. I must admit, even before John said this, I thought the word martyr was quite odd. It seems to suggest some kind of holier-than-thou saint who's beyond reproach. There's something really outdated about the notion, something black and white. I think it's strange, 100 years later, that there's this fear of Merv also being remembered for all his faults. And by extension, that means Reg is passed off as a two-dimensional murderer. As if it's some kind of proof of culpability. To me, Merv and Reg's faults make them more interesting, more real, and reveals the toughness of the times. But that's not a memorable one-line slogan. Merv being murdered by an armed scab That's the lie that makes headlines. Another M-word John's keen to correct is murder. Going back to my very first interview with John, he was adamant that words like murder weren't useful. It matters to him that Reg doesn't go down in history as a murderer. It's a very confronting word, which shifts a lot of direct purpose and motive and blame on a one person. I'm certainly, I'd be reluctant to accept the term being used widely in those terms, particularly when even a a questionable legal process had found that he had no case to answer. Uh, So, yeah, I would, if the the term Bridgewern murdered Merv Flanagan came at a general widespread use, I'd feel uncomfortable about it given what we know. It's a fair point. After all, Reg was never tried for murder and the original charge set by the police court was manslaughter. It's factually incorrect for the unions and labour movement to be using the word. Jean then tells us something that surprises us. In amongst all this narrative fighting, as much as he's protective of the Wern family's reputation, he reveals to us that in his later years, Reg was an alcoholic. He was a problem. He was being passed around the family. I wondered whether his alcoholism would have been in some way connected to the to the incident in 1917, but his grandson tells me not. He said he started drinking heavily after his wife died. It's hard though, isn't it, to separate something like that, to mm, know whether... It is. I mean, people get... These more... things can be latent for ages. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like trauma from soldiers and that sort of thing and, and all sorts of trauma can lie latent for, and then manifest itself long, long while after by an event or something like that, which will trigger it. John's words leave me with these images of the two brothers. There's Walter. I picture him living on as a revered ghost on the family estate. 
He died a decade after the strike. There was silence called for in Parliament and his funeral attended by politicians on both sides. Huge. I can see his presence felt as the family sits around his cedar table every Sunday for a roast. And then there's Reg, a problem alcoholic being passed around the family. Reg may have walked away scot-free, but his name wasn't cleared. The man who was once a champion boxer is forever tainted by this killing. And he too sits at the cedar table listening to the next generation tell stories about his legendary dead brother. I reckon all of this could have, over time, pissed Reg off. And maybe this is why Reg included in his papers donated to the State Library that letter Walter wrote to the Inspector General of Police asking for Merv's prior record. The letter suggesting Walter had a hand in it all. Could it have been a final act of defiance against his successful older brother? We asked John if he would be open to meeting Sandra. He's a bit more cautious than she was. I feel quite a heavy load of responsibility. It's a first. It's it's undoubtedly the first time a Wernal and a Flanagan's got together in 100 years, and it's probably time. I've got a very tenuous representation of Reg being a a, a grand-nephew, and the fact that I knew him virtually not at all. Do you think it's important that we need to confront uncomfortable histories? Yes, to a point, I think it is. I think you find a bit of might find a bit of peace there. I'm I'm concerned for the for the Flanagan family that they find some God, I hate the word closure, that they find some they can find some peace in this and because it, it it's been largely unknown element in their family history too, they might be starting from scratch a bit more than we are in our family and they might be quite confronted as the stuff comes to light comes to light. I don't know how Sandra's handling it. I'm quite interested in meeting and talking to her. John's a little concerned though. After our talk about apologies and descendants coming together at Mile Creek, he thinks that Sandra might be expecting him to say sorry. Yeah, I'm not sure what comes out of it. It'll be the first meeting of descendants associated with this and I'm well aware of that and I put some significance in that. But uh, I'm not sure enough of the ground under my feet to sort of talk about apologies and resolutions and all that sort of stuff. And John seems to be wrestling between empathising with the Flanagans and upholding the Wern family's reputation. And perhaps I think that means upholding Walter's reputation more so than Reg's. Walter, the politician who had a lot to lose if his brother was found guilty of manslaughter. Walter, the grandfather John idolised. Maybe now John has a lot to lose if he admits that his grandfather might not be the man he thought he was. Unlike Sandra, who tells everyone about the story of Merv, John hasn't told his children about the story of Reg or Walter. Do your kids know about this? No, probably not. Um, they probably don't know a lot about our family history, and we discussed that earlier. That you you start you start getting interested in in history when you get older. So why haven't you mentioned this to your kids before? For no reason, for no reason at all. I haven't either avoided it or we just haven't got around to it. 
but I don't know why I'd pick out the incidence of the Great Strike as, a, as somewhere to start. John, with his binders of information, is not actively passing on his family story. Meanwhile, Sandra, who knew nothing, tells everyone. One family remembers, while the other forgets. But before we get to the meeting, I want to tell you about something that happened along the way. The Honourable John Graham. Remember John Graham, the handsome Labor politician who's trying to get justice for the Flanagans? I rise to speak on an issue raised in this parliament 100 years ago. Well, he's called for an apology in state parliament. Merv Flanagan was a Labor movement martyr murdered in 1917. He is yet to see justice. That's why today I call for the City of Sydney to join with the Labor movement to permanently recognise the site of Merv Flanagan's death in Camperdown. Um... Okay, can you just give me a level? Peter Piper picks a pack of peppers. Great. Um, so, Francis, you brought me into the studio because you've got some news. Yes. Do you remember when we were at Parliament House and John Graham was talking about having a memorial to Merv near the side of where he was killed? Yes. Well, it's going ahead. Oh, only 100 years later. Yes. <laughs> I was contacted by the City of Sydney and they're going to do a plaque um, at a site just not far from where the killing happened. Cool. And they asked me to write the words. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it's 20 words that will fit on the plaque. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting because I've had to have a bit of a play around with what will be included and what will not be included. Yeah, 20 words isn't much at all. No. So what have you suggested? Um, I've suggested Mervyn Ambrose Leslie Flanagan shot through the chest and killed by Reginald James Wern during the Great Strike of 1917. So we've been talking a lot about the meaning of words in this story. How did, how did the City of Sydney respond to your suggestion? Well, they had to put it out to, I guess, a host of stakeholders, really. So people, union representatives that went back to John Graham and a labour historian. So they all had a bit of a look at it um, and all put in their opinions of what else should be in there. And some of them very felt very strongly uh, that words like unionist um, and strike breaker and strike should be included. So there was a bit of tweaking that went on. What's the final? The final arc? is Unionist Merv Flanagan was shot through the chest and killed by Reginald Wern, a strike breaker, during the Great Strike of 1917. Okay, so the real difference is kind of the way I see it, like the insertion of the word unionist and strike breaker. Yeah, so it just gives it a little bit of a different skew to be more about the historical event of Striker against Strikebreaker rather than Reg and Merv. And how do you feel about it? I feel like before it was a bit more about the people and this is perhaps a little bit more politicised. And look, it was it was a strike. That was the event and the context that it happened in. I just feel like, to me, it's more interesting to look at Merv the person, Reg the person, and spark a bit of curiosity about those two men rather than the black and white of strike and strike breaker. I overheard folks talking of a local Irish American who 
up in dusty city lanes. A We're a street over from where Merv was killed. There's renovated upmarket terrace houses around us and a remnant of bush. It's a humid, cloudy Sunday afternoon. A modest group of about 50 people, unionists and politicians have gathered. We're at Merv Flanagan's memorial. Musicians sing Merv's song that featured recently in a musical about the Great Strike of 1917. To all the family, the Flanagan family, but all those that have the dareness to struggle, to Merv and to the, but the plaque um, for Merv, as a remembrance for everybody in our community, but also unionists across the country, the importance of Merv Flanagan's struggle and what he symbolises as the will to stand up against the odds and against... As I'm listening, I can't help but feel Merv is just being used by the union cause. But then this... The collective experience of the labour movement in these circumstances is that the judiciary, the state, the media and the government all combine to ensure that the real outcomes, the real events are not remembered. There is an amnesia when it comes to working class history. What we always know is that the ruling class know how to celebrate their dead. And what this occasion does today for the Labor movement is a small stepping stone in saying that we're reclaiming our history. It's true. This story was censored at the time. Newspaper reports that didn't support the war banned. The documents from the case destroyed. Only one side was ever told. No photograph of Merv or Beatrice exists, and yet the Werns have books about themselves in the State Library. This is about reclaiming a part of history that was effectively buried. Thanks very much, friends. We watch as Sandra, solemn, lays a wreath next to Merv's plaque. She asks her granddaughter Natalie to take a photo of her with the plaque on her iPad. Uh, Down here uh, and then um, we'll head up and have a good wake. After the unveiling, the crowd is invited to a traditional Irish wake for Merv at a pub up the road. Sandra holds court, accepting a couple of beers from well-wishers. Yeah, so can you tell me about what happened today? Well, I came down from the central coast because I'd been invited to... um, an unveiling of a plaque for my grandfather and um, I was very surprised when when we got there and to see the people, see all the people there and they spoke all about my grandfather and that and um, that was beautiful. I couldn't stop crying. And now I'm actually at my grandfather's wake. I never got to his wake when he died because I wasn't born but today... I'm at the Nags Head having a drink and listening to Irish music and I've had a beautiful day. It's interesting to me how all the players in this story have folded their history. For John, this story has challenged him. 
It's moved beyond looking for clear-cut answers to understanding the grey. For the union movement, this story is about having a voice. And for Sandra, I don't think you can even put into words what this story means. The first time I met Sandra, she'd asked me about her grandfather's grave. She said she wanted to see it. Since that day, she's been wanting to visit but hasn't managed to get there. Producer Ellen Leebeater and I have just picked Sandra up from Sydney's Central Station and are on our way to Rookwood, a cemetery in Sydney's west. So you're looking forward to seeing the grave, Sandra? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the only time I really come up here now if I go to a funeral. Rookwood may as well be another city. It's the biggest cemetery in the Southern Hemisphere. There's a bus service that goes through it. It's divided into sections. There's the Jewish section, the Pacific Islander section, the Macedonian Orthodox section, to name a few. When you drive in the main gate, I've got my brother on the left, and you just drive down, like it's just a little dip there, and then just in that section, that's where his mother's buried. So it's, and I've got that many family buried there all round together. So they're, they're all together. We drive to a section on the outer edges of the cemetery. This was once known as the New Catholic Section. Many of the graves here are unmarked, families and loved ones too poor to pay for a headstone. Today, most of the headstones are over 100 years old and many lean or have fallen or parts broken off. It's a hot summer's day. As soon as we get out of the car, the cicadas are shrill. I think it must be a fair way in. Oh, they're up there. Oh, up there. Merv's grave is a bit of a walk from the road. We step through dry grass, brittle twigs snapping under our feet. Do you know what? I did a thing on Facebook the other night, just a little test thing, who's looking after me. And it come up my grandfather. And I said, isn't that funny, all this going on that's been going on about me grandfather? And then for that to come up on Facebook... Uncanny. Merv's grave is discreet, easy to miss, compared to the rest of the cemetery. It's unpopulated. Someone's been here putting flowers. Look at that. Just grab a tissue, please. Looking after me, don't you? I'm surprised at Sandra's raw emotion. Merv's been dead for over a hundred years. But this is about more than Merv. In loving memory of my dear husband and our father, Mervyn Ambrose Leslie Flanagan, who was killed at Camperdown the 30th of August 1917. I have lost my soul's companion, erected by his loving wife and family. And another little one down here on the front of the grave. It's got two daddy. The little one Sandra's talking about is a statue. It's an angel but it's seen better days. Dear Daddy, so that could have been my father and that, and that looks like that's, that's been standing up there. 
Maybe I should take that home, eh? Yeah, I think I should. Too bad we can't find the head. So why do you think it's so important for you to be here today? Why is it so important? At least my grandfather, I never knew him. This happened to other people. I mean, everyone would do the same. They didn't know their grandfather and then all of a sudden, 90, what, six years later, you know, you know where he is and, you know, all these things are being done about him, you know. And the fact that he's he's become a martyr is just unbelievable. Who would have ever thought there'd be a martyr in the Flanagan family? I'm just so proud. It might be my last visit. We thought the final scene in this podcast would be the meeting between the two families, the Flanagans and the Werns. It was all set to happen on a Friday morning. At 6am, my phone rang. It was Sandra. Her brother had taken a turn. She was waiting for the ambulance. Later, I rang John saying we'd reschedule. But we never could. We tried and tried to get the pair to meet. It wasn't to be. Right now, Sandra's waiting for the unions to release a film about the strike and about Merv that she'll appear in. She's since been back to visit Merv's grave. John, as the retired mayor of Bingra, continues to be involved in the small country town. He and his wife Wendy volunteer in the visitor's centre. As for me, after 10 years researching this killing, all that remains in my head are the images from making this podcast. The dusty pink colour of the earth in Bingra, the shamrocks carved into Merv's headstone, the way Sandra's eyes bulge when she laughs, John's country hospitality as he poured us a glass of wine after being grilled. And Bridge Road, the place where on that August night Merv and Reg cross paths. If you head there at dusk from the city, you'll see the sun hanging low in the sky and you can almost see Reg riding up on his cart, Merv standing there, waiting by the side of the road. You can hold on to that moment before the story of what happened next would be told by police and journalists and politicians shaping the words to fit the system. And maybe now Sandra and John have something more to shape their stories. Maybe now they have a bit more to pick and choose from and own their version of the killing. But that's just my voice, trying to undo the folded lie. If you've enjoyed The Folded Lie, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to John and Sandra for being part of this journey, for having us in your homes, for sharing your story. Thanks also to Mike Williams, Mandy King, Fabio Cavadini, Jason Laquia, 
Yael McGilvray, Tim Roxburgh and Ollie Henderson. Ellen Leebeater is executive producer with assistance from Miles Martignoni. This podcast was created with support from the City of Sydney and 2SER 107.3. I'm Frances Morgan. This is The Folded Lie.